Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Utah State University declares 2020 the Year of the Woman. Celebrating often unknown Aggie women, those who served as pioneers from the institution's earliest days to those paving the way for future generations of leaders and innovators. Support also comes from Idaho National Laboratory. Puerto Rico continues to recover from Hurricane Maria and faces the challenge of building a more resilient electrical grid. Microreactors are a promising candidate. Information at inl.gov news. Next up, a rebroadcast of an Access Utah episode from April, honoring the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Every day for Earth Day, we check in with our friend, writer and photographer Stephen Trimble, author of Bargaining for Eden, Fight for the Last Open Spaces America, and other, uh, other books. And this time around, Stephen Trimble suggested we also reach out to his friend, uh, agricultural ecologist, ethnobotanist, and writer Gary Paul Nabhan. Gary Nabhan was an intern in Washington, D.C. at the creation of the original Earth Day in 1970. He's been reflecting on Earth Day 50 years later as we approach that milestone this year. And uh, Stephen Trimble and Gary Nabhan co-wrote The Geography of Childhood, Why Children Need Wild Places. We bring in uh, Stephen Trimble um, uh, to the program. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Hi, Tom. I'm always delighted to be here with you. Good to have you with us. Are you in Salt Lake at this point? I am in Torrey. You're in Torrey. at the Red Rock Desert. All right. Which is a good, safe place to be during the pandemic. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, Wayne County. People are spread out. Um, And Gary Paul Nabhan, welcome back to the program. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here with you. I'm in Patagonia, Arizona, down by the infamous U.S.-Mexico border. Ah, close to the border. All right. Um, well, let me start with you, uh, Gary Naphan. Um, you were in Washington, D.C. You were an intern uh, in 1970, the creation, and, and you, you helped with the first Earth Day, did you? That's right. There were about uh, 70 to 80 of us that drifted in and out of the Earth Day headquarters office from November 1969 through April, and I actually worked at Earth Day headquarters uh, twice in 1970 as an intern, uh, doing cartoons, short articles for the newsletter, uh, helping uh, mail things out. We had no social media, of course, so a lot of it was handwork, and it was uh, a great uh, pivotal experience in my life. Mm. You were doing, among the things, you are doing cartoons, you said? Yes, as my daughter says, I used to uh, uh, be a cartoonist for uh, the University Press Network and uh, uh, the Earth Action Newsletter, and then I became a cartoon myself. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Nothing like family, right? Yeah. Um, That's right. Did you interact at all with Senator Nelson? I did. Uh, He'd come into the office every once in a while. It was about uh, 12 to 20 blocks away from his uh, Senate office. But uh, just a a few months after that, I was uh, waiting in Lake Michigan, and I saw that I was coming up to an Audubon Center in Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, and I dried my uh, blue jeans off and went up to see what was there. And he was just coming in to do a cocktail party. And I told him I'd worked at Earth 
the headquarters and met him. And he said, well, come to the cocktail party. I was soaking wet, and he was so kind. He was a remarkably uh, interesting man that loved youth activists. And so he turned the whole Earth Day over to youth activists, and he continued to nurture young people his entire life. Mm. Now, uh, I'm I'm guessing even Senator Nelson, with his vision, was surprised. Were, were you surprised with the, the scope of what Earth Day became, you know, beginning with the first one? Well, that's right. We could not have possibly known that it would become the largest so-called secular event on one day in American history, uh, 20 million people, that's about uh, 40 times the size of Woodstock six months earlier, and that over uh, the years it's grown into the largest celebration of anything on the planet Earth, 200 million people of about 200 countries involved uh, every April around this time. So Stephen Trimble, do you, uh, what are your memories of the first Earth Day? I was in college in Colorado, and I remember it being largely a uh, celebration of just being outside on the quad. There were big, giant balls to roll around that represented the Earth, and uh, I wasn't directly involved in organizing at all. I was simply a student taking advantage of some really fun activities. I was not yet a full-blown activist. I uh, came to it a little bit later than Gary, I guess. And uh, I remember it just as a joyful moment to stop and go outside and play. And that's not a bad way to, to celebrate Earth Day. Mm, yeah. you know, over the years since, of course, I've, I've tried to think of ways to use my skills as a writer to mark Earth Day over these, these many, many years since. But that that first Earth Day was, I remember, just as a, a day of joy. So uh, this is the 50th year, and I'm guessing that absent COVID-19, uh, <laughs> would have been a lot bigger. Uh, Gary Nabhan, um, as you write, COVID-19 pandemic is overshadowing Earth Day in, in, in a sense. What, what are your thoughts? Tragic at one level because there were enormous events being planned. Greta Thunberg and many other youth activists were um, on uh, the platform next to the stage ready to hop on and fire us up. But at the same time, uh, there's something with this COVID issue that reminds us that we all are global or planetary citizens, and whether people are interacting by uh, social media or uh, listening to the radio or watching television, there's an enormous interest in this that I think has been magnified by COVID, that if we don't get um, environmental protection right, we're inevitably going to have more pandemics and more tragedies, climate disruptions, and I could go on naming them, but I think at the same time, Steve said something very important. It was supposed to primarily be a day of celebration, not just in defense of Mother Earth, but the joys of being out in nature. And that's what I'm doing for the rest of the day. And one critique I've heard of the environmental movement is we seldom take pleasure in the work uh, that has uh, 
achieve something so that we can enjoy wilderness areas and and uh, parks and other places. And so today should be something where we go out with one or two friends and with social distancing and enjoy our direct contact with the earth. Mm. Uh, Stephen Trimble, your thoughts, uh, COVID-19 in, in these times, these extraordinary times, and and, and now Earth Day. Yeah, I, well, I agree with Gary. It's, it's, an, it's just a fascinating juxtaposition, and I think it may give us a chance to really think about a pivot on the planet. Uh, you know, Earth Day comes and goes in a single day, and this was going to be an amazing time to bring millions of people onto the streets with energy for that, powered by young activists, young, powered by the youth. But now everybody has ground to a stop, and we're all sitting here in shelter-in-place spots all over the world thinking, okay, what is going to happen next? And I don't think that many people believe we can simply go back to normal. So this this is a chance, and ironically, on Earth Day, to think about, okay, what can we do to address global climate change? What can we do to reduce our imprint on the Earth? Maybe we need to really pay attention to all those clear skies over the cities that, that have been so polluted uh, over many, many years that, that are now absolutely clear. Maybe we need to pay attention to those uh, quiet skies with so few planes interfering with our our ability to listen to the birds, and and maybe this will give us a chance to really take action and rethink the future. And that's a very optimistic take on things, but that's the flip side of the pandemic. It's, it's really giving us a chance to stop and think. Do you think there will be any permanent changes when we come out of this? Well, we still have to fight the powers that be, right? The the powers of corporations that are trying to make money as much as they possibly can, and the power of the Trump administration that's taking this opportunity to roll back all environmental regulation, and the inability of Congress to act, and the difficulty of pushing through big change through our political system. But, you know, incremental change is good. Any change is good. And and uh, it all comes from the bottom. This is a, This is a time for all of us to come back out of our homes where we have burrowed in and make some demands. And I, I don't know if it will happen. It takes leadership. It takes energy. But all those youth that have been organizing events that are now doing them online, they have a lot to say. That's who we need to listen to. Mm. By the way, Gary Nabhan's going to be you know, spending the day mostly outdoors. What What about you? How are you celebrating Earth Day? Well, I, I, I have the enormous privilege of living in a in a home on a Red Rock Mesa in southern Utah, and pretty much whether I'm inside or outside, I am immersed in this place. And I'm enormously grateful to have that chance, so I, I will certainly be outside. Mm. And also doing some writing, you know, that's that's the responsibility, I think, of folks like Gary and I, is to, to take these ideas and get them down somewhere where people can read them. And Gary's been writing up a storm as, as Earth Day approaches. Mm. Uh, Gary, you should talk a little bit about your your uh, series of walks that you've been post posting. Uh, yeah, Gary Nabhan yeah. has been interesting to write. By the way, uh, GaryNabhan.com. dot com. That's right, and I just want to uh, dovetail on something that Steve said that I think is so important. 
that for many people, half the Earth's population, this may be the first time that they've seen clear skies or heard silence because trucks aren't going by their house. And uh, the it's almost like a proof of concept of uh, my friend Alan Weissman's uh, book, The World Without Us. If human uh, influence and impact recedes or takes a pause, people then understand both how much we impact the Earth systems, but also if we mute that impact, if I, we reduce our footprints, how much um, joy and beauty and fresh air and clean water may result from it. So this is a very strange time where uh, the half of the world's population under 18 really gets to um, experience a quieter uh, less polluted earth for the first time in their lives. Mm. I want to reference, uh, jump in, uh, reference some of these things you've been writing, Gary Knapp, and uh, both of you mentioned, mentioned young people, and um, uh, you uh, you have a post on your website, GaryKnapphen.com, uh, and by the way, it's uh, StephenTrimble.net, um, to check out the two websites. So you quote uh, Franciscan teacher Richard Rohr, you say once told a bunch of us over earnest, graying wisdom seekers, if you're over 50 and you're still thinking it's about you, your ideas, your dreams, you're missing the fun. That's right. My wife and I uh, started something here in uh, Patagonia, Arizona, uh, seven years ago called Earth Care Youth Corps. That's Hispanic, Native American, uh, Mexican citizen, and, and Anglo youth, both sides of the border who work five weeks together in the summer on ecological restoration projects, planting gardens at senior centers, et cetera. And the energy we get back from those kids, we're no longer the coordinators or day-to-day managers, but we still have contact with them each year. Their energy is phenomenal. Their inquiring minds are asking the right questions. They are concerned because they've heard already that their lives may be more impoverished than the lives of any human generation that's ever lived and that they may never gain the income that their parents or grandparents have achieved because most of the world's capital will be going into the damage done. So they're fired up about all of this and they're doing great work even as high school students, uh, planting trees, planting gardens, healing wounded uh, arroyos or gullies, and I I take so much inspiration from them. Um, The little that I've given back to youth has uh, given me gifts a thousand times more delightful than the effort that I put into it. And with each each of these posts on uh, your website, you're you, you have a suggested action item, usually a, a walk, right? So th- this one you say, today walk with the younger person you know and let him or her tell you the dreams that are emerging now. Could place this pl- a better place to wish to dwell. Uh, and you might have thought, you know, maybe you'd walk and you'd tell them your dreams, but try to pass that on. But you're saying have them tell you their dreams. Uh, that's right. I, I mean, I've done six um, op-eds or feature articles in different publications as well as these uh, 50 days of uh, little blog spots as we walk towards Earth Day together. And my sense is that I'm so impressed by the other voices out there 
that we all need to hear and carry with us in our daily work. If we lose that reflective moment that we can have in the morning before everything starts up and don't carry it with us through the day, um, our own actions um, and our own impact does not change much. So start off in the morning um, really thinking what we can do for this planet and the incredible diversity of humankind on it. Stephen Trimble, uh, I know you interact with a lot of young people. Uh, do, you do some teaching and, uh, and some other things. So, your thoughts on this and what and what are the what are the young people you interact with? What are what are they thinking? What are they hoping, demanding? You know, I think this is such an important thing to talk about. And, and Gary, you know, extended the answer already. The thing that I've been thinking about is what has changed. You know, Gary and I wrote the essays in the geography of childhood, exploring how we made our connections with nature when we were young and what we could learn from young people 25 years ago. The book is now halfway back to the original Earth Day. And we were, we were seeing then, back in the mid-90s, that fewer and fewer kids were making their connections with nature, spending time outdoors, just roaming and thinking and playing and doing nothing. And that was just at the very beginning of the digital age. The Internet was just a couple of years old. And obviously things have changed drastically. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk and writing these days about how anxious kids have become. There's an article in the current issue of The Atlantic called What Happened to American Childhood? Too Many Kids Show Worrying Signs of Fragility. And you can't blame it all on spending too much time on the screens. I think you can blame it a fair amount although I hesitate to blame parents ever for anything because they're doing our, we're doing our best. But uh, parents have become so intent on hovering and not letting kids wander around and make mistakes and, and take responsibility that that's one thing that's changed. So that's sort of one track, one part of my answer to your question. But the other answer is what Gary was talking about, this enormous energy upwelling from from young people who are looking at a world that is daunting, and some of them are anxious and some of them are cynical, but many of them are saying, this is the best possible time to live because everything we do is going to make a, make a difference. And I think kids go through the four stages of grief or the five stages of grief, whatever, however many stages there are. I saw this when I was teaching a, a class of master's students in environmental humanities at the University of Utah a couple of years ago. The students were grieving the future that they saw and then moving ahead and taking action and starting organizations and and uh, going out into the world to create awareness. And it gives me enormous hope. They're not relying on older mentors. There's this energy that comes right out of their own community. And uh, as Gary asked us to do today, we need to listen uh, I want to talk about that. You, uh, Gary Nabhan, uh, that's a good segue. Uh, one of your little posts here um, is headline, Notice the Wounds in the Habitats You Walk Through, but Don't Stop There. See What Cures. Um, and uh, as Stephen said, the, the young people you know, going through those stages of grief and then going to action. And you talked about this a little bit. Um, the, the Earth Day number one began a truth and reconciliation about long-term damage done to the environment. Uh, you say uh, your action item for that day is you walk, notice the wounds in the habitats you walk through, but don't stop there. See what cures. That's right. And the, the really funny little turn in my own career is going, 
into a field that that Steve was really much more interested in than I was 25 years ago, and that's the relationship between psychology and our, our time in nature and how uh, our time in nature stimulates us towards positive action. But I, I've just uh, uh, written an article that will be out in Eco-Psychology Journal uh, soon that, that literally shows how when we get kids out in nature to heal nature's wounds, they're inoculated with beneficial microbes. Their cortisol stress levels go down. A dozen other indicators of better psychological health begin to emerge uh, on kids that are being monitored for these things. And so as, as we take time with children to heal the earth, and its wounds, we are literally healing our own psychological and physical wounds and improving our mental, emotional, and physical health. Mm. I wonder, um, Gary Naphan, your, your reflections on the geography of childhood. We heard from Stephen on that. It's now 25 years. Well, the thing that uh, Stephen and I always laugh about is we wish we would have invented the term uh, nature deficit disorder. Uh, uh, Richard Louf sort of knocked it out of the ballpark uh, 12, 14 years later uh, by getting that phrase into the heads of teachers all around the country. But I, I have to say that um, Geography of Childhood, unlike any other book that I've been involved in, and I was so grateful to work with Steve on it, um, had 170 different reviews in magazines and newspapers, something that's unheard of today. But it really formed discussion groups all around the country. In one case, a, a school had a retreat for its teachers just before the fall semester started. And they said, why aren't we taking the kids out on the Forest Service lands behind the school? And people said, well, there's a fence there. They talked to the Forest Service, who said, well, we'll put a gate in the fence, but also if the students want to do a trail back from the uh, uh, edge of the school property onto the Forest Service uh, property and make it a nature trail or an environmental education trail, we'll pay for that. So th there were incredible things that emerged with people's own genuine responses and feelings about these issues once they came into dialogue about the topics in the book. It wasn't that Steve and I were the catalyst per se, but it validated their own concerns and values, and a lot of magic happened. Hmm. Well, let's uh, take a break, and we'll come back for, with more with um, uh, Gary Nabhan and uh, Stephen Trimble. Um, and we're celebrating Earth Day uh, today, the 50th anniversary. Uh, the, the anniversary is a little bit muted from what it would have been because of COVID-19 concerns, but uh, uh, still a day to reflect, of course. 50th anniversary of the first Earth Day in uh, 1970. We have with us Stephen Trimble, a writer and photographer, and uh, Gary Paul uh, Nabhan, um, who uh, is author of uh, many books as well, and... Uh, is a agricultural economist and ethnobotanist and author. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Silicon Slopes Magazine, focused on Utah tech and startup industries, supporting good causes that affect us all.
Information about weekly town hall meetings or advertising in the magazine at siliconslopesmagazine.com, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. This is M. Capito, an integrative psychotherapist with ideas for becoming more resilient. Viktor Frankl, an Austrian psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, dedicated his life's work to demonstrating the central role of meaning in our ability to overcome adversity. He defined three sources of meaning that we can intentionally build into our lives. What we give, what we experience, and what stand we take in the face of suffering. Nietzsche is often quoted, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. These three sources of meaning give us a purpose and the ability to maintain hope and find meaning in life despite its inescapable pain and loss. This is how we grow through adversity. Opportunities to reconnect with our why, with our own personal sources of meaning, can be found in creativity and acts of service, being fully present in meaningful encounters with our loved ones, and embracing our freedom to choose our attitude in the midst of difficulty and uncertainty. This tip is brought to you by UPR's Project Resilience. To learn more about the project and explore more resiliency tips, visit upr.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April, honoring the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. It's Earth Day 2020. It's the 50th Earth Day, first one in 1970. We're celebrating today, as we always do, with uh, writer and photographer Stephen Trimble. And uh, we are including his friend, uh, agricultural ecologist, ethnobotanist, and writer Gary Paul Nabhan on the program today. Uh, we have another 20 minutes left with uh, Stephen Trimble and Gary Paul Nabhan. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Um, and uh, and w- what you're thinking, uh, maybe what you're reading, and uh, more importantly, maybe what you're doing. You're going to take a walk, for example. Um, upraxcess at gmail.com. I want to start uh, this segment with Stephen Trimble. Um, y- you mentioned, and we've been talking about uh, some great writing that Gary Nabhan has been doing on his website and other places. Um, of course, you're a writer, Stephen Trimble. I'm, I'm sure reflections. You're probably doing some writing, but uh, are you doing some reading as well? Or would, uh, what's top of mind as you reflect on this Earth Day? Well, I, uh, <clears throat> I think one of the books that I would recommend most highly for for thinking about the Earth is Richard Powers' book, The Overstory, which won a bunch of awards last year. Uh, he starts by beginning the, with the lives of a, a whole suite of characters, each character of which is intertwined with a particular species of tree. And then each of these characters get turns, gets turned loose into their lives, and they all come back together at the, at the end of the book to defend the redwoods in Northern California. But it, it really makes you think about forests and trees in a, in a different way at the same time that you're reading a brilliant novel. You know, there's a lot of great stuff in there about the mycelium that tie together trees that allow trees to communicate, but it's built into this grand story with wonderful characters. Anything that kind of directs our attention back out of ourselves and, and back into the earth that, that we live on 
you can't go wrong with. And, and that's the, the big book that's going to keep you going for a while. Mm. Um, I just wanted to mention two little anecdotes uh, when I was thinking about our remembering the geography of childhood. Gary and I got the idea for the book, The Geography of Childhood, when we did a joint reading at Utah State University. Oh. And we came up to do a fundraiser for Petroglyph Magazine back in the days of Tom Lyon running such things. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And we each were reading essays about looking at the world through our kids' eyes, and that gave us the idea for the book. So I wanted to give Logan credit for that. And uh, I also wanted to mention, when Gary was talking about how widely how wide the ripples were that came from that book, whenever we would do a reading, when it came time for questions and answers, what people wanted to do was tell their own story. They didn't have all, the, all those many questions for us, all that many questions for us. They wanted to raise their hand and say, here's what I experienced in nature as a kid. They wanted to share those stories. And we all have those stories. And remembering those stories today, and then going out into the world and sort of recreating that magic, that's what today is all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got remembering some of some of the ones from my childhood as well. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, 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 um, I well remember Professor Lyon. I, I took a class from him. Uh, Seven a.m. I remember. <laughs> One well, wonderful man and a great teacher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gary Nabhan, I wonder if, uh, yourself. Uh, I'd highly recommend uh, going to GaryNabhan dot com and reading some of the stuff you've been writing. But to, uh, to other other things that you could point people to. Yes, I'm uh, fascinated that the best book uh, on the topic of kids and nature, I I think, uh, since Geography of Childhood, is Florence Williams' The Nature Fix. It's just delightful writing. I also agree uh, with uh, Steve that our attention to trees and uh, Michael Reisel connections have offered an explosion of great literature, including uh, Robert McFarling's uh, recent book and uh, uh, some wonderful books that Monica Gagliano has been involved with, Thus Spoke the Plant, The Language of Plants, and now 40 of us are going to be in a book that she and John Ryan and Patricia uh, Vieira are coming out with this summer called um, The Mind of the Plant, which are each of us taking a different uh, tree and talking about its intelligence. Uh, the idea is that uh, um, the intelligence in plants and animals is not necessarily funneled through a cerebral cortex and a central nervous system, but there's true intelligence in how plants and animals discern choices in the world and then act upon them, and that definitely fits the root definition of intelligence. So you don't need a uh, cerebral cortex in a, in a brain in your head to have intelligence. Mm. Um, I, I want to make sure we address the... Uh, the, the uh, as you led up to Earth Day, you had a lot of these posts on your website... And this is the one you chose to, to post for Earth Day, uh, you know, for for today. Conservation couplets. I just want to read a couple of these. Uh, it's very interesting. A lot, lot here to, to parse out. I want to talk a little bit about this. 
Uh, you write, we once feared that the world is doomed and the selfish actions of Earth's many people are what is dooming it. We can, now, we can see now that if humans have capacity to wound the Earth, we also have the capacity to heal it. We have humility to recognize, utilize to celebrate our collective healing capacity and somewhat, somehow be healed ourselves by participating in that restorative process. I'll just read the next one. We once self-righteously felt we have to demonstrate the drive to fix environmental problems for others who cannot immediately see the necessity of doing so. We now understand that we need to make a change happen by working with others and changing ourselves. We need to include others in envisioning and implementing shifts toward a more inclusive set of uh, players. Uh, tell me about the what's behind these these couplets. This is the one you chose to to post on Earth Day. Well, I, I want to go to the latter one right off the bat. Uh, more and more of my work over the years has been uh, empowering, offering places on the stage and at the table for. Uh, activists of diverse cultural, uh, racial, and faith-based backgrounds, and then getting out of the way and not speaking in any way for them, but uh, letting their voices be heard. Uh, so that my, my wife and I are, for example, are involved with supporting a youth group in um, the Sierra Indian uh, villages in Mexico that have won a World's Oceans Today uh, Award for uh, conserving sea turtles. They're now working with us on a project uh, to uh, solarize and use water harvesting for the critical needs in a hyper-arid landscape for people uh, to have access to fresh water and renewable energy every day of the year. And we're working with Steve's uh, daughter, Dory, um, on that project, and another project to uh, plant uh, coastal forests, including mangroves, something that Steve and I fell in love with when we went to the Galapagos together, to buffer the community from uh, hurricane action and climate disruptions. And uh, so uh, all this summer I'll be wading in mud and mangrove swamps planting mangroves with uh, two dozen youth of an indigenous community. The point is that that it can't be uh, a concern of just the uh, privileged upper class uh, northern European community that, uh, that the earth um, needs more attention. We need to listen to the many, many voices in different cultures who have their own ways of thinking about these issues and support them and the solutions that they identify. Uh, Stephen Trimble, your, your thoughts on, on this? Well, there, there are a couple of things that I, I wanted to inject. Uh, one is another book to recommend that I forgot to mention the first time you asked me that question, and that is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kimmerer. Oh, yes. I was published several years ago, and it's now become a bestseller for milkweed because people are gradually discovering it. Uh, she's both a, a biologist and a native person and a gorgeous writer. And uh, when I taught that class to those master's students several years ago, this was the book that they responded to of everything that I asked them to read. So that's, that's crucial. Um, I wanted to ask Gary directly. He, he, he basically answered this question, but I wanted to ask him, how do you maintain hope? 
I know Gary's been involved a lot with fighting the border wall and the destruction that it's wreaking on Native communities across the, the border and the Tona Odom Reservation. How do you, that's the direct question, Gary. How do you maintain hope? I think um, it's by our very contact with nature and the youth that we've been talking about that uh, sort of uh, vanquishes all those uh, chemicals of depression and hopelessness in our bodies and give us the nerve and the verve to wake up and try to do something that makes a difference. So the the youth inspired me. I have to say I'm also um, really humbled that um, I was able to reach out to elders uh, uh, for my Earth Day pieces that, that made a huge difference in my life. Wendell Berry and um, Gary Snyder uh, both uh, responded to my um, uh, request to bring some of their words back in front of us all for Earth Day. So I, I also still listen to elders as much as I do youth. And again, what you said, Tom, that it's it's not about us. Whenever we're listening and um, uh, working hand-in-hand with people of other uh, cultures, faiths, ideologies, or persuasions, we somehow find those common bonds and common values. Mm. Uh, Stephen Trimble, I'd, I'd like to turn that question back to you. Um, I'd be interested in the, your answer. Uh, how do you how do you find hope? Other than the exact same things Gary said, I would quote a Mojave Native man that I interviewed years ago. It was a parole officer in a in a really tough community on the reservation. And I asked him how he maintained hope, and he, he said simply, there is no choice. You know, you get up in the morning, there are things that you want to do to change the world. You can only keep going if you maintain hope. And so it becomes, in some ways, a moot question. You know, in that way, I was a little bit unfair in asking Gary that, but I was really interested to hear what he would say. And it's amazing how the power of the earth can regenerate your energy and your sense that you can make a difference and your passion for activism by simply going out and sitting in the sun and reading some good words and finding that it brings you peace and recharges your batteries and, and gets you going. Um, that, that's how I maintain my hope. And, and again, looking at those young people, there's a, there's a term that's current called environmental generational amnesia, in which each generation takes a look around and assumes that's the way that the Earth is. And even though it's more degraded than it was the generation before, they take it for granted that that's the baseline. And I think young people today are resisting that and fighting against that generational amnesia and saying, no, no, we can, we can make things better. We're not going to take things the way they are. Mm. And that, that fuels us older folks for sure. Mm. Uh, I want to get an email in here. This is from uh, Ronnie in Teasdale. See your your neighbor. Uh, Ronnie says, mm-hmm. apropos of the 50th anniversary, I highly recommend American Zion by Betsy Gaines Quammen, which is about the Bundy family and its public lands claims. I'll add parenthetically, um, uh, fortuitously here, to thank you for mentioning this, uh, we have Betsy Gaines Quammen and her husband David Quammen on the program tomorrow, so tune in for that. Um, uh, and Ronnie also mentions, also have just begun, The Big Heat, 
by Jeffrey St. Clair about global warming. Many thanks to Stephen Gary for this excellent show. That's Ronnie and Teasdale. Thanks for that, Ronnie. You can email us as well, upraxis at gmail.com. What are you reading? What are you doing on this uh, 50th anniversary of Earth Day? Uh, upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, we just have uh, about five minutes left uh, with you two gentlemen uh, today. Um, so maybe I just want to get uh, you know some final reflections. I'll start with uh, Gary Paul Nabhan. Um, you, you mentioned you're there in Patagonia near the border. I, I know you've been reflecting a lot on the border. In fact, uh, I know, very interesting, you post on your website uh, written testimony for fiscal year 2021 appropriations. Uh, you're uh, asking the Department of Defense and Treasury to rescind funds for building the, the border wall. Um, that's right. Uh, a large amount of money was taken away from military bases, many of which are uh, close to our border, uh, that were to go to hospitals, clinics, and uh, things like daycare centers that could now be used for quarantines if we had had them. And we, we simply um, need all those resources that are going into this stupid, useless wall within 18 miles of where I'm sitting right now uh, to go back into helping people, not going back in to a political stance to uh, support our president's uh, basis fears about other people. There's virtually no traffic across the border where I live compared to even 10 years ago. People don't even want to come here. We have the worst response to COVID in the world. Why would someone want to uh, come in to immigrate in the United States right now? So, but what I found is that people from Native American, Mexican, Mexican-American, Anglo uh, cultures have come together. Old friends have called me up from 30 years ago and said, we need a larger group of people to fight the uh, wall and its violation of the spiritual freedoms of people who live along the border, uh, who uh, the pumping of groundwater that may not come back for a thousand years and the um, fragmentation of wildlife habitat. So every day for two hours minimum, I've been working with Native Americans and uh, people on the Mexican side to build a larger groundswell to stop this ridiculous division that's um, happening in our world that's based on a uh, disease worse than COVID-19, and that's xenophobia. Mm. Um, uh, Stephen Trimble, what's uh, what's top of mind for you, a top concern maybe, and what, what, what you're going to be working on here in Utah? Well, one thing I'm horrified by is the the BLM's attack on pinion juniper woodland. You know, they're, they've, they're sneaking through a plan to uh, what they call treat pinion juniper woodland, which means destroying pinion juniper woodland with the idea that they can grow more grass for cows and pushing through a rule that would allow them to do that without any public input at all on pieces of land up to 10,000 acres. So there's, there's always another op-ed to write. There's no doubt of that. Mm. Another place that you can find a lot of good reading to do, the mention of Betsy Gaines Plumman reminded me that Tory House Press has invited all of their writers, which includes me, to post a blog essay about living in this time 
and uh, that series of of essays about hope and literature in a time of pandemic is at the Tory House Press website, uh, toryhousepress.com. Good stuff there. The the last thing I wanted to do was just read a couple of sentences from the geography of childhood, which I keep going back to in our conversation this morning, thinking about what we can do as parents. And uh, these are the last few words in a couple of my essays in there that seem relevant now. As parents, we can take our children with us to the land. We can be there with them as they climb on rocks, play in streams and waves, dig in the rich soil of woods and gardens, putter and learn. Here on the land, we learn from each other. Here our children's journey begins. As parents, our job is to pay attention, to create possibilities, to be careful matchmakers between our children and the earth. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for that. Uh, tell us again, so the Terry Tempest Williams event, where can we go and view that? Uh, that is uh, utahearthday.org. They... And then uh, the Tory House uh, Press, that, that that's on their website? Yes, if you go to toryhouse.org and click on Beyond Books and That Thing Like Feathers series, you'll find a, a series of really interesting pieces by... Brooke Williams and Craig Childs and myself and a bunch of their a bunch of their writers, including Betsy Quaman and Dave Quaman. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Um, Stephen Trimble, uh, thank you so much. Delighted to be here. I'll see you next year. Tom. Okay, okay, sounds good. Gary Paul Nevin, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, and thank uh, your whole team for such great programming uh, on public radio. That gives me hope. Well, well, thank you for that. Appreciate that. Um, we're celebrating Earth Day, so happy, happy Earth Day to both of you. Thank you. Same to you. And many more. And to everyone. And many more, yes. Thank you. You've been listening to an episode of Access Utah, first broadcast in April, honoring the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And you can also find our Access Utah interview with Betsy Gaines Quammen and David Quammen on our website, upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and utahhumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. This is Craig Jessup, director of the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, inviting you to celebrate Christmas in July with the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra and Utah Public Radio. During this time when public performances are limited, UPR will broadcast of AFC's Christmas concerts. Join us July 24th and July 31st at 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. for a special broadcast of the 2015 concert featuring Jenny Oaks Baker and Jenny Jordan Frogley and the 2016 concert featuring AFC's first performance with Gentry. Support for this special American Festival Chorus and Orchestra Christmas in July broadcast comes from Utah Humanities Cares funding and the National Endowment for the Arts. Listen July 24th and July 31st here or online at upr.org or through the free UPR mobile app. Race is at the core of every issue this election year, from healthcare to the economy. And for a lot of folks, that's too uncomfortable to talk about. But I'm talking about it. I'm Rebecca Carroll, the host of Come Through from WNYC Studios. 
Join me for conversations with brilliant thinkers and activists, Issa Rae, Don Lemon, Gabrielle Union, and others. Where is this country headed? Find out. Come through. Join us Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Next up, it's Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert and Jen Ashton. Whether you like cooking or just like to eat or are passionate about your culinary adventures, most of us can agree, I think, Jen, that there's nothing more sad than a sink full of dishes. Wouldn't it instead be easier if there were just one one cast iron skillet or Dutch oven or one sheet pan or one pot at the end of a meal? Yeah, or one grill to stand in front of and have it all done at the end. It's my dream. In fact, my true dream is something like on Star Trek, where you stand in front of a box and say, Earl Grey hot. But I don't think that's going to happen for a while. And it just materializes <laughs> right there in front of you. But the next best thing is the idea of one pot meals. The simplicity, the speed, but it does have some drawbacks. One of the problems of one-pot meals when you look on them online is that most of them are either pasta or chicken. Sure, the common ingredients. Or, I mean, soups and stews are kind of the ultimate one-pot meal. And I love them, but if you're not careful, they can kind of be one note in flavor. Yeah. I am on a quest to try and give a little variety. As you were pointed out, you expand beyond the pot. You could use just one sheet pan or just one griddle. I think it's really important to use fresh ingredients, at least a couple, in every meal to develop your flavor. Don't use all canned or pre-processed ingredients. And um, there's always adding a sauce or garnish of some kind right at the end to give your um, one-pot meal a little interest, a little pep. A couple thoughts on that. I mean, when I think of a one-pan meal, I, I is there anything better than roasted vegetables and maybe along with some sausage, if you'd like that as well. But, you know, the colors, the red onion that's perfectly caramelized, just filling that pan with the zucchini, the grape tomatoes, the yellow squash. So that's been one of my favorite one pan meals. That is amazing that you bring that up. But I listed here my three favorite one dish recipes. Okay, and number one is sausage with Brussels sprouts and honey mustard. Mm. Oh, Brussels sprouts with honey mustard are really a great pairing. It's a great combination. It works if you get the sheet pan in your oven really hot. So what happens is the fat from the sausages coats and seasons the veggies, and the honey gets caramelized. It's sweet and salty and a little bit acidic. All you need is sweet or hot Italian sausage, Um, trimmed Brussels sprouts, oil, salt, and pepper, honey, and Dijon mustard. And you really basically just coat everything with oil, throw it on a pan, put it in your hot oven, roast it until it's almost done, and then put on the honey and Dijon. And are you even having to cut up the Brussels sprouts and the potatoes or can they go in whole? um, The Brussels sprouts just need to be trimmed. Um, They get brown and crispy on the edges. I have a few other recipes that I love. I'm going to tell you about them really quickly. Fish tacos are so easy. You just take your favorite flaky fish, halibut or tilapia, season it with Old Bay seasoning, and cook it in butter and oil in a pan until it's opaque. 
serve it on warm corn tortillas with um, a bunch of chopped and shredded veggies. I, we like onions, carrot shreds, and cabbage. And then the key to this recipe is the sauce. And for that, you do need an extra bowl for this recipe, I'll admit. You, but no more cooking. Um, you put together sour cream, mayo, lime juice, and a few of your favorite um, spices. Oh, that sounds great. I, I love that your tips here of expanding beyond the pot, adding the sauce or the garnishes really help because those slow cooker recipes you were talking about, they can get caught in a, less confident flavors will get lost. And so I like your use of some of these sauces and good tastes in there. So if you want to try a one pan recipe that maybe is out of your current repertoire, find something that really kicks up the flavor or the texture or uses an ingredient that you don't normally use. There's no guarantee that one pan cooking is faster or easier than typical cooking because sometimes it can be more complex, but for the really delicious ones, it's definitely worth it, especially at the end when you're only washing up that one single pan. This is Lael Gilbert and Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, it's international pop music. Songs with mainstream appeal from Africa, the Caribbean, Asia, and Europe. Un principiante che non aveva mai amato un po' distante. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for World Pop, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan, also heard online at upr.org.